I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. <laughs> it's very important that when we discuss this, Eric, we don't laugh. It's a serious subject. Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. And the first thing I want to tell you about is an exciting new show from the Agora Podcast Network. Uh, One of our favorite Uh, TV shows out there is, of course, Game of Thrones. We love following the political intrigue. Uh, We like blabbing about the geopolitics of the different factions. And uh, Agora has just picked up the history of Westeros by Aziz and Ashaya. Um, I'm really excited to listen to it. Uh, It's new for us. And it's, you know, something that we've been excited about getting on board for a long time. So definitely go check out History of Westeros if you want to learn about everything Westeros um, up like from long before and including the Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire series because it turns out there's a ton of lore and it's a really, really rich, um, uh, really rich universe. In fact, uh, one thing I learned from a friend of mine who did their thesis on Wikipedia is that the Westeros Wikipedia um, is more complete in its information about the history of Westeros than the United States sections of Wikipedia are about the history of the United States because people are really into it and also it's not as politically charged, right? So uh, there aren't there aren't like arguments over exactly what happened between like the old Targaryen kings back in the day. Um, and so you don't have to like, you know, cancel the editing and such. So, uh, really rich world, really great podcast, really excited to listen to it. Go check it out. Rich lore. Good word. Lore. We don't use the word lore lore enough. No, we don't. Today, we've got a great episode for our Christmas special. We have once again brought back the inimitable, the spectacular, and the always funny Enrique Fonseca Paras uh, from Visual Politique. He is back to help us talk about what's going to happen to the world when the Arctic melts. Fonseca, welcome back to the show. Happy to be in the awesome, incomparable, and unspeakable greatest political podcast in the whole internet the greatest podcast in the whole internet reconsider (laughs) yeah i'll take that thank thank you fonseca thank you fonseca 
So the first thing we want to we want to dive right into this topic, and we need to start with what is you know one of the most pressing issues of our time. If you're from the United States, you know that NORAD um, tracks Santa's progress every year during Christmas as he moves around the world delivering toys to good girls and boys. And one of the things that NORAD's really good at tracking with satellites is the, the progress of the melting of the Arctic. And what they are predicting is that within the century, um, the precise location of Santa's workshop is going to be underwater. Now, of course, there is a raging debate in the United States over whether you know global warming is real, whether it's man-caused. Uh, we're going to we're going to talk about this episode from the perspective of uh, the people who are very concerned with the Arctic and how they're playing the game. And everyone who is concerned geopolitically and economically about the Arctic is assuming that it's melting. So we're going to go with that. And the first person who really, really cares about the Arctic is Santa. Santa, of course, has his uh, extensive workshop near the North Pole, um, just a few miles south of it. And you say, you know, south, that's very specific. Turns out all points are south of the North Pole. So he's close by um, and has been operating for, you know, obviously a very long time with a substantial impact on the toy market, substantial impact on you know, demand side economics throughout the world. Um, and and suddenly this beacon of the economy is under threat. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, guys, is, is if the Arctic does go through a full seasonal melt, um, you know, and at some point the, the location of Santa's workshop is underwater, what happens? I mean, what happens to... Santa, what happens to the global toy market, especially around Christmas? I mean, this is this is stuff we really gotta gotta understand and and help our help our listeners think about. Well, I think if there is a, I think the most likely place for hosting the brand new Santa Claus headquarters would be Svalbard, the Svalbard Archipelago. It's also nearby the North Pole. Is actually the northernmost. Uh, human populated area which is not only ice it's also land soil so uh, he might go to Svalbard for several reasons the first one is it's uh, under the Norwegian crown so it's uh, compared with uh, the other Russian settlements or Greenland it's the the place with the highest degree of rule of law and that's very important for Santa Claus because he needs rule of law. He needs some clear, clear rules so he can hire the, the elves and everything. Second, it's a place with way lower taxes than, than anywhere on, on the planet. Actually, virtually there is no corporate tax in, in Svalbard Islands because it's a very special zone. It's a, also the militarized zone, so there can be no army whatsoever in the land. And it's totally open for immigration. So virtually everyone from everywhere can come to Svalbard, which is also very important for, for Sanders' business because, as you know, he has to hire a lot of people from overseas, especially in the seasonal times. Now, during Christmas time, he has to hire... He, he has a, a peak in, on his uh, workload because he has to make all those presents, all those toys that 
children are asking for all around the world. So in one month, he, he concentrates 90% of his workload. So therefore, he has to hire a lot of people, especially overseas. And Svalbard, it's the perfect location for that because anyone can be there as long as they can sustain themselves. Like, for instance, if you are there in America and you want to emigrate somewhere else, uh, you want to go to Czech Republic or to Germany or Japan, you need, you need a visa, right? You need to go to the embassy, get some paperwork. Not in Svalbard. In Svalbard, the only thing you have to prove is that you are self-sustainable, that you can pay your bills, you can pay your things. That's the only thing they require. I think one thing that I want to keep in mind here is we talk about what seems like the possibility of a relocation of Santa's uh, workhouse. And because it, it seems likely, and maybe, you know, it's a slow relocation. He kind of keeps one location at the North Pole for production. But as he loses land, uh, loses real estate up there, like you guys have said, he needs to look elsewhere. Let's say he moves to Svalbard. Now, Svalbard is demilitarized, but administered by Norway, which is a part of NATO. And the question is, as the Arctic melts and becomes an area with more geopolitical competition between Russia and the U.S. and other countries that have an interest in shipping lanes up there, is Santa's workhouse going to fall under the NATO security umbrella? Well, I think this is this is particularly important to ask because one of the questions is, you know, of course, NATO countries have imposed substantial sanctions, uh, trade sanctions on Russia. And is is Santa going to be impacted by that? You know, because right now being a part of the Arctic, which is sort of it's um, what is it? Uh, Terra Nullis, right? It's not owned by any country. It means that the sanctions don't apply to Santa. So he's able to freely ship um, ship presents duty-free without restriction around the world to all of the children of earth. But, you know, you know, Fonseca, you may know a little bit more about some of the special rules for Svalbard, but would, yeah. would Svalbard one fall under the NATO security umbrella and two, would it fall under the, the anti-Russian sanction regime? Uh, no to both of them. Oh. Svalbard is uh, no. I mean, the thing is, Svalbard is a very, 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 a unique scenario in I think there there is no equivalent to, to Svalbard anywhere else on the planet because it belongs to Norway in a way it's part of the Norwegian crown they are based on the Norwegian law but definitely they don't pay the Norwegian taxes as I told you it's kind of a fiscal haven even though they well, okay there's no banking secret but but it's a very good place a good destination for companies uh, even though no one wants to settle down there, but but they they could, and uh, no no army can can be in Svalbard. No, nor the Norwegian army, nor the Russian army. No one. So I don't think it's part of the of the NATO, and this is why there are, there is even a Russian settlement. Actually, in fact, there are only two cities, if you can call them cities, or maybe we should say villages. There are only two villages in, in Svalbard. One is Longyearbyen, which is populated by a majority of Norwegians, even though there are immigrants from everywhere in, in the planet, especially Thai, Russian, Japanese, Chinese. And then there is another settlement called Barentsburg, which is populated by a majority of Russians. And now 
the Russian government, who is very interested in the Arctic, they try to increase their sway on the Icelands because as we are gonna we are gonna see on the rest of the podcast, there is a lot of political conflict in Svalbard. And Russia is sending a big influx of tourists. Actually, the Russian government is promoting as much as they can the what they call the Arctic tourism. So over during the in, in the last three years, more than sixty thousand Russians have flied to Svalbard for a for a visit as tourists. And there are more than I think they already have a, more than a thousand Russian people living in Barentsburg. And one of their ways actually to promote that tourism was by sending the Ministry of Defense, the Russian Minister of Defense, they sent him to Svalbard, creating a big scandal because, as you know, as you said, as you mentioned before, Eric, there is these um, sanctions uh, against Russia. So, in a way, you shouldn't send... He he, he shouldn't be able to be in a NATO country, but since Svalbard has this special treatment, he can do it. He yeah. did it. He went there, but of course, it was a way of provocating the the NATO countries. It was like a, a a big provocation for them. Well, I think that will come as a big relief to, I mean, certainly children across America, but all over. Because if Santa is, were to be subject to a new tax regime, it may be that the cost of delivery would go up so much that you might have to start including an extra two to three cookies just to get the gifts delivered. But I'm glad that that's not the case. Now, what's interesting about the relocation of Santa's workshop is that we can use that as a microcosm to zoom out and look at the region as a whole. Because as we noted at the beginning of the episode, whether or not you think the Arctic is man-made or man-caused or not, there's a broad consensus Uh, both amongst scientists and the U.S. military, the U.S. Navy, that the ice coverage will decline in the next several decades. And there are geopolitical ramifications to that. Now, one of these is shipping, right? Because it's difficult to send boats through the Arctic right now because, again, there's lots of ice. As that ice melts, Guys, what's your sense of how that's going to change shipping up there and how the change in shipping lanes has broader impacts on economics and defense and all of these issues? Yeah, I mean, obviously, shipping by sea is not an issue for Santa, but it, you know, it is for the rest of us. And what I think is actually really interesting about Fudseca bringing up Svalbard is that it looks like Svalbard could you know, potentially play a, a surprisingly large role in an Arctic that has at least, se- you know, full or close to full seasonal melt. And when we say seasonal melt, um, you know, for those who haven't thought about this that much, you know, the temperature changes throughout the year in the Arctic, you know, fairly dramatically, you know, just like everywhere due to, you know, due to the seasons, right? The earth tilts. And so the Arctic, when we talk about the Arctic melting, you know, unless the earth gets really, really hot, the, the first thing we're going to be seeing is that in the summer, the Arctic, parts of the Arctic will melt, more of the Arctic will melt, or all of the Arctic will melt. And then in the winter, we're going to see some freeze over again. You know, so during the summer, not only is Santa not able to, to operate in the Arctic, but we also have, you know, we also have water between different countries that used to be covered in ice. So you can now ship between, 
you know, you can ship between Norway, Canada, parts of the United States, uh, and Russia, you know, in Denmark and, and Scotland a little bit in a way that was just not plausible before. And there's potential to see a substantial new um, shipping regime emerge because not only is this water melting, but the land near the Arctic becomes warmer, becomes a little bit more hospitable. Um, and so the idea of setting up you know, warm water ports in northern Russia, further north in Canada, et cetera, is, is no longer out of the question. And in addition, uh, there's a substantial amount of oil and gas in the region. Is that right? Yeah. Basically, you can save around 20 to 40% of uh, the length of a trip if you travel through the Arctic. That's massive for logistic companies and shipping companies. So putting the oil thing aside, which is already, uh, it's another big thing. Uh, the, the, the Arctic thing, it's very important, the Arctic route. And some experts say that perhaps in 2050, it can be already a thing because there are two processes. The first one is the melting of the, of the ice cap. And on the other hand, the technology to make the icebreaker ships it's getting cheaper and cheaper every day. Now the icebreaker powerhouse is Finland with a lot of companies that uh, create really big ships that can go through. I mean, the, the way this is, you need a, if you need to cross the, the Arctic, even if it's melting, you need some bigger ship who can break the ice. And then you have the normal ship, the one who has all the goods, who is following the icebreaker, okay? So these icebreaker ships, they used to be very expensive, but they are getting cheaper and cheaper every day. So putting all these two factors, you have that perhaps in long term, uh, depending on what you consider long term, perhaps in in three decades, we're going to see the first Arctic routes. Just imagine a trip from, I don't know, New York to Japan, now, if you want to go from New York to Japan, you need to cross the, I guess, the Panama Channel and then go all the way through the Pacific Ocean. If you can do it through the Arctic, imagine how much you're saving. What we see here is that, you know, in some decades, there's going to be a like, real value for having a presence in the Arctic, right? Because, you know, to some extent, one of the things that gives the United States so much power globally is that its dominance of the seas allows it to ship anywhere. And that sounds like kind of an obvious thing for those of us who have grown up since the Second World War, that, you know, of course we can ship anywhere. And, but that didn't always used to be the case, right? Pre-World War II, um, and in particular, pre-World War One, you know, different parts of the ocean were dominated by different countries. And if there was a conflict, it was fairly easy to shut down shipping lanes. If you, As you get closer to certain countries, it gets more plausible to shut down shipping lanes. So there are certain areas like the Suez Canal, like the Straits of the Bosporus, the Malacca Straits, where there's growing tension and stress over who controls them because they have control of what gets to ship through there. And that means they can wage a form of economic warfare should there be substantial challenges, um, you know, in the geopolitical arena. But 
when we look to the Arctic, you know, these new shipping lanes open up, you can, you can now find new ways to get from, as Fonseca pointed out, say New York to Japan, um, you know, so the East coast of the United States to East Asia from Canada to like Northern Asia, a lot easier, et cetera. Um, but what's also the case is that these ships have to either be moving, you know, they have to move through waters that are ultimately either going to be controlled by NATO forces like Canada, the United States, Norway, or by Russian forces, or in conflict of both. Russia right now doesn't have much in the way of warm water ports. In fact, it kind of didn't have any in the West, um, you know, any ports that were consistently warm water, that were consistently not frozen over until it invaded and took Crimea. Um, and Crimea is great, although, again, it can be blocked off by Turkey in the in the Bos- uh, Bosporus Straits. But if things get warmer in the Arctic, you have a lot of options for sea travel, uh, but you also have this very, very long Russian coastline um, where they can start deploying uh, naval vessels to try to exert control over the area. And if I remember correctly, Fonseca, we were talking about this earlier, and Russia's already starting to do that. Is that right? Yep. So yeah, they're already they're already deploying a number of or starting to deploy a number of uh, bases in the Arctic to prepare for a time when the Arctic has melted um, and they're able to you know, start projecting power in the area. And right now it seems almost crazy, right? They've invested tons of money that they arguably don't even have into the Arctic Circle, but they're playing a very, very long game. Um, in fact, former Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Robert Papp of the United States said that the United States is woefully behind in this new Arctic ice race. Um, and, you know, that means that we're, that at least parts of the United States and certainly a big part of the Russian military is thinking of this area as a new po- potential geopolitical, uh, you know, area of, of conflict to control. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget how great of an impact trade routes have had on human history. One of the more recent examples is the Panama Canal, which was constructed in the early 20th century. That obviously helped with trade. No longer did ships need to go down around the south or the the southern tip of South America. But having the Panama Canal basically let America stay afloat in the beginning of World War II because a lot of their Pacific fleet got destroyed. Not all of it. Some of it was out when Pearl Harbor got hit. But being able to quickly move the fleet back and forth through Panama was sort of a saving grace in in the first six months of the war. You go back a little further, say, the Suez Canal. And the, the British interest in the Suez Canal, which let them get to India, their colony in India, without having to go around Africa, played a big role in 19th century geopolitics and which side Britain took in a number of different conflicts, thinking um, primarily about the Crimean War, when they were motivated to defend the Ottoman Empire because the Suez Canal wasn't constructed then, to the later Russo-Turkish War when they kind of said, meh, you guys fight it out, we have the Suez Canal, because they needed to go through Turkey before the Suez Canal was built. You go back even further and you think about the in the late 15th century when Spain, um, Spain and Portugal both, 
began looking for ways to get around the Ottoman Empire, which at that point was just beginning to rise. There was all of this commerce and trade and goods coming in along the Silk Road, which ran through the Ottoman Empire on these caravans. And um, the Ottoman Empire wasn't exactly hunky-dory with Christian Europe. So those Christian monarchies had to look for ways to get around the the restrictions imposed on them by the Ottoman Empire. And that is what really motivated and set off that great age of exploration, which led to uh, the conquest and subjugation of the Americas, as well as the colonization that ultimately became the U.S. And it's all because the Europeans love their spices. And the Ottomans knew that if you wanted to hit the Europeans where it hurt, you had to make them eat bland food. And so everyone <laughs> but the British Isles was really, really mad about that. And the British Isles said, eh, you know, we like it bland. <laughs> That's that is the history of geopolitics is bland food versus spicy food. Actually, quick digression. I learned from a doctor when I was preparing to go to China um, a little bit about spicy food and the the history of spicy food, as he put it, goes a bit like this. So, you know, as you get to warm, wet areas, uh, bacteria are a thing. They love warm, wet areas. And so bacteria are everywhere. And plants in this area don't like bacteria. Well, sorry, bacteria and bugs. And plants in this area don't like bacteria or bugs. And they uh, evolved to develop capsaicin uh, in order to drive off the bacteria and the bugs because capsaicin is painful. And so the bacteria and bugs are like, ugh, no. And so these plants, you know, developed peppers and such that would carry their seeds without those seeds getting rotted away by the bacteria and the bugs. And humans also don't like bacteria and bugs all over the food that much. It gets them sick. And so in places such as India, Southern China, Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera, uh, people started putting spice in their food in order to keep it, you know, preserve it so that it was edible. Um, and if you contrast that to the British Isles or especially the Scandinavian countries, uh, they didn't have access to spices because the plants there were like, we're not going to put capsaicin in our food. We don't need it. It's cold and we don't have to worry about bacteria. So not only did they not have access, but they didn't need it either uh, because those same bacteria weren't making them sick. And so that's why you developed spicy food in um, areas close to the equator and not so spicy food in areas far to the north. But as it turns out, it does get warm enough in Europe to uh, for food to rot, obviously. This is why we have refrigerators and such throughout Europe and North America. And before refrigerators, uh, they said, ooh, we could preserve food using all these great, great spices. This sounds really important. So it was, it was more than just a flavor thing. Uh, it was a very big part of food preservation and health and therefore actually really important. And so we can, you know, I'm sure, you know, if you're sitting there, if you're a grad student sitting there thinking like, I want to write a cool thesis topic on something weird and obscure that had a major geopolitical impact on the world, you could talk about how spices came about, how important they were, and how they drove the age of uh, you know exploration and colonization throughout the world. Boom. You can, you can put me in your acknowledgments. Dude, you really shocked me with that. That's one of the best bits of knowledge I had in the last year. Reconsider fact right there. Reconsider it's a fact thing. right there. Boom, in your face. It's awesome, dude. <laughs> Big fan. 
big fan. That's that's all I can say. I'm the biggest reconsider media fan you can ever find. In that might be true. Yeah, I'm I'm telling you. At least uh, outside of America, I'm sure in America you're full of fans. But outside of America, here in Europe, I'm your biggest fan. So, oh yeah, in in the United States, we're just covered in fans. Uh, they they're just knocking down my door all the time. Yeah, that's I have what... a I have to put up a sign that says "Recording in progress." Please don't knock. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's what it hurt. I mean, actually, Justin Bieber was jealous of you because you had more followers on Twitter. It was amazing. I was thinking, why this guy? Maybe you should start talking about politics, Justin. But uh... no, 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 don't don't encourage that. Don't yeah, don't so, encourage that. Be, yeah. <laughs> this was this was of course during your most recent dinner with uh, Justin Bieber, right? You're like, hey, Justin, let me tell you yeah. why why are you so upset about these reconsider guys? Just play the game. Just do it. That's it. Yeah, I was here in Prague and he was like, oh, no, no, no one cares about me anymore. And I said, dude, you have to talk about politics. That's the sexiest topic. You're going to get fans and be loved by everyone, especially in America. It's a there you go. uncontroversial thing at all. Justin, if you're listening, you know what to do. So anyway, that's so, yeah, that's a, a very uh, what's that? There, there's another thing I I will I just want to point out. Uh, and yeah, that, sure. Uh, not only uh, it's not only about the in, enormous possibilities for for trade. It's also the trade routes create a lot of wealth and a lot of wealth not only for companies but for the countries and the cities that are in the middle of the trade route. Cities like, for instance, here in Europe. Prague. Prague became an important city in Europe because they were in the middle between, they were a connection between the Silk Silk Road and the Amber Route because another very important trade was the the Amber. It was in the middle of those two routes and that's why it it became an important city during the Middle Ages. So imagine what can happen with Greenland Svalbard, um, the north of uh, Russia, uh, some areas in Siberia, some areas in Alaska. Now, not so many people care about them. Don't forget Canada. Canada. Not so many people care about those places now, uh, mainly because they are populated by uh, really uh, tribes and it's really hard to, to do business there. For instance, in Nunavut in Canada, uh, you have the Inuits living there and they have their still some legislation which is based on their traditions and not to mention Greenland where you don't even have private property. So, so far business-wise, these points have been, these parts of the map have been always like, nah, we don't care about them. But now, just imagine that you have a house, some property in Svalbard or in Nunavut and eventually that becomes one of the stages in the route where the ships go to... I don't know, get some fuel, uh, feed the sailors, because I guess they, they have to, to stop somewhere to, to, to get fuel, to eat, also to, to, to charge, uh, to, to, to get some things to, to sell somewhere else. They need to make some stops. So all these places, they can become way bigger population-wise and money-wise. Absolutely. Well, and also, does the 
Does the Arctic melting mean that it's going to be easier to access some of the oil and gas that's in the region? I'm guessing yes, but I don't know. I don't know if if that oil and gas would even be affordable to mine. Yeah, it's oil, gas, and mines because there is also a lot of minerals, especially in Greenland. Greenland, it's really rich in natural resources. It's enormously rich. You have a uh, uranium, gold, mm, I think iron too. You have uh, oil. Greenland has so much oil you you can't imagine. The Arctic has like in general the Arctic has like a nineteen percent of the undiscovered oil in the whole planet. One question I have is is Greenland is the reason that Greenland is not exploiting more of these mining resources primarily due to its legal system, primarily due to the ice sheet, or is it just both? Both. First, you have the legal system. I mean, of course, if you don't have even the, 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 some law that protects the private property, well, uh, first, we should specify Greenland. It's also part of Denmark. Like, they belong to the Danish crown. But they are getting increasingly more and more independent. It's, uh, well, you remember in the previous podcast, we were talking about the independentist movements. So there is one, a big one in Greenland. Actually, the Greenlander government uh, it's uh, controlled by the Greenlandic Party, the Greenlandic Nationalist Party, and uh, they are one of the few places where Inuit is uh, considered an official language. Even though they are part of the Danish Crown, they have their own legislation as well, and there are very few rules to control private property. I mean, virtually you can say that there is no private property in Greenland, so it's pretty hard to invest in the in the in the country. Besides, another reason is that, as you said, eh, there is uh, still ice, and it's still hard to to take all the mining resources and oil. And also, it's pretty risky because, for instance, unlike Svalbard, oil in Svalbard is in the continental shelf. But the oil and the most of the resources in Greenland, they are on the coast. But Greenland has no beaches. It has um, cliffs. Imagine the picture in your head, okay? Greenland. Most of the icebergs like that we've seen in the, in the movies, like the iceberg that destroyed the Titanic, it came from Greenland. The icebergs, they are big uh, ice blocks that break from from some bigger island, uh, some bigger island. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greenland is one of the biggest uh, origins of most of the icebergs that we see on the on the sea. So imagine that you are with your ship trying to drill in the Greenlandic coast to try to get some oil or some resources, some whatever, and all of a sudden, boom, it falls down. An iceberg as big as uh, the Rockefeller building, it falls down. And it doesn't do it in months it doesn't take months to to fall down an iceberg uh, it breaks in a matter of minutes you don't want to be there right right so right now it's just straight up dangerous to be able to go do some of this mining as well as probably very expensive but as we see this ice melt more and more there are already, that companies. They, they are already companies who are making arrangements anyway i mean not not so many as they would like to But there are already companies that are getting some some deals with the Greenlandic government. Mm. Yeah, because I suspect that even though Greenland doesn't have private property, they're still willing to, as a as a territory, conduct economic activity and and you know make money from it. Yeah, mainly also don't forget that politics wise, Greenland used to be zero. Like uh, from the point of view, from an economic point of view, Greenland used to be zero. They they had only some fishermen, but since they were attached to their Greenlandic Inuit traditions, they didn't fish so much as to be able to sell what uh, whatever they they fished. So they were living out of Danish subsidized. But then, with this increase in nationalism, that they want to be an independent country, if they ever become an independent country they will no longer have those grants from the Danish government. So they need to have their own things and they have virtually nothing. There is no other industry, no education whatsoever. So it's only whether they let those companies do the drilling and do the mining or they have nothing. Have you ever heard about some Greenlandic company doing something? Can't admit that nope. I have. I mean... Even the some of the cod, for instance, some of the cod that we eat worldwide, it's processed in Greenland, but not by Greenlandic companies. They are actually Danish companies who came there because it was cheaper and, and whatever. But they are not a national business. So as this develops, what kind of what kind of conflict could we potentially see? I mean, obviously, if there's trade moving around, there's you know past the Russian coast there's potential for some sort of conflict because there's you know because obviously the the arctic while it is slightly larger than the mediterranean it's not much larger than the mediterranean so what you imagine is if you picture the mediterranean and along one side of the mediterranean you have these nato aligned countries the united states canada and greenland via denmark and then svalbard via norway and then along the other side you have russia and so there's you know if you're if you're going through here whether you're russian or whether you're nato aligned You know, there's a risk that if if something blows up, um, there's going to be some trouble. There's also, you know, all these gas and oil fields, many of which are 
many of which are near Russia, many of which are near Norway, many of which are near Canada and the United States. Um, these, most of these, or many of these are within the exclusive economic zones of these countries, which makes it much more straightforward. However, with, within the, beyond the exclusive economic zones, there are competing claims over the ocean territory um, in, you know, in the Arctic. Uh, some notable ones are overlapping claims by Denmark and Russia, uh, not surprisingly by Canada and Russia, um, and the United States and Canada seem to have more or less worked it out between themselves. Um, but is there going to be, you know, could there be uh, like a scramble to um, access the resources in the Arctic beyond these exclusive economic zones? And, and you know, in particular, if we have shipping through this area, it has to cross the Bering Strait uh, if it's going to go from you know, the Atlantic to the Pacific, is there, is there potential for issue there? Are we going to see, for example, build more buildup of bases in, you know, in Vladivostok and well, east of Vladivostok and in Alaska? Um, are we going to see a buildup of naval military in the area? Yeah, et Vladivostok, just for folks unfamiliar with the, the geography is, is a, sort of like the major town in Eastern Russia. Um, so it's, it's, it's closer to the Pacific than Europe. It's really Asia, right? Now, we'll, we'll throw up a map to get a sense of what the Arctic Ocean looks like if you actually look at it from the top. And I think this is maybe a fault of a lot of two-dimensional maps of the world is, and I'm kind of staring at a map on my wall now, you know, it's just that sliver on the top. But of course, the world actually wraps around. So as Eric mentioned, it's, it's bigger than the Mediterranean, but we tend to not maybe think of it as like an enclosed space like that, but it really is. And it, a couple of things become very clear when you look at a map of the Arctic from from the top. One is all of the land that Russia has. Russia, by far, is the nation with the most territory bordering the Arctic, and that has implications. And the other is, as Eric mentioned, there are only so many ways to get out of the Arctic. So if you're shipping to different ports along the Arctic, let's say it's become easier to move ships, one way to get out is through the Bering Strait, which is that little area between the northeasternmost part of Russia and Alaska. There are a couple of others, but they're all very narrow. One is sort of in between Greenland and Canada. Another is through the area between the northernmost part of the United Kingdom and Greenland. And the thing that becomes interesting if you look at that particular exit from the Arctic Ocean is that um, lengthwise, in terms like miles-wise, it's the widest, but there are a couple of different, very strategic parts of land there. The first of which is one that you don't usually think about a lot when you think about geopolitics, but Iceland. Iceland roughly divides, but is a little closer to Greenland, the passage between the United Kingdom and Greenland. And then in between Iceland and the United Kingdom, there are these set of islands called the Faroe Islands. And they are, um, I think they're a part of Denmark, right guys, the Faroes? They are, they're Danish. Yeah. So the, these areas that you never really think of all of a sudden begin to gain this strategic relevance. And this is part of the reason why Iceland was allied with the U.S. during World War II, because the U.S. had to make sure that it had it was able to exert some degree of, of control in that area to block the German uh, push into uh, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, I think that I think that if you look at the map of the Arctic, 
you know, looking from the top, so centered on the North Pole, the if you think geopolitically, I mean, some sort of buildup in this region is almost inevitable. And at the same time, some sort of shipping agreement has to become almost inevitable. I mean, Alaska, like Alaska and Russia are so close to each other that the United States or Russia could block the access through the Bering Strait. Um, you could have NATO countries on the other side blocking Russia's access. But again, if either side, if either the Atlantic side or the Pacific side is blocked, it's almost worthless, right? The the Atlantic, or sorry, the Arctic trade route becomes almost worthless. So there's going to have to be, in order to exploit it, in order to use it, there has to be some sort of arrangement where ships can pass through the Bering Strait unmolested. Um, you know, again, much like the Straits of Malacca, much like Panama, um, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some way for countries to be able to to pass through. However, what's unique about the Bering Strait versus Malacca versus uh, Panama and versus the Suez Canal is that you don't have one country straddling it. Uh, same with the Bosporus, right? Bosporus is also one country straddling it. Those three areas, you have one country in control. In this area, you have two countries who are antagonistic to each other that have shared control of the area. And that's more or less been fine so far. You just have a few guys on either side looking across at each other. Apparently, Sarah, Sarah Palin uh, was near enough to this to, to see across the Bering Strait as well. Um, and they mostly just hang out right now. But in the future, they're going to, you know, there's going to have to be a point where you are regulating traffic through this area, protecting traffic through this area, and making sure that there's not going to be, you know, that there aren't going to be incidents in this area. I guess the best um, the best analogy for this that I can now think of off the top of my head is the Persian Gulf, uh, because Iran and like Kuwait and Iraq are, and uh, was it Yemen, are all in that area. And you occasionally do have conflict. You have threats of, you know, Iran shutting down Iraq's access to the Indian Ocean. Um, and they could plausibly do that. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the United States and its allies could plausibly take control of that area and prevent like non-allied access to that. And it, it flares up every now and then. Um, and I, I can't, looking at this map, I can't see a future without that kind of, you know, stressful, tense cooperation going on. So real quick, Yemen, actually not on the Persian Gulf, it is on the Gulf of Aden. And, right. and the reason that's actually somewhat important is because, and this is strictly a tangent, so excuse me, but Iran has a big influence in Yemen, at least as a recording of this podcast. They are still supporting these Houthi rebels, which are pro-Iran, and the government of Yemen is nominally pro-Saudi Arabia. And the Houthi rebels, the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, have mined this port city called Hodaida, which um, doesn't completely restrict traffic, but makes it a lot more perilous to move through. So they do have a strategic choke point at the beginning. And again, as right now, as of recording of this podcast, the Yemeni government is moving on this port city. So that's, you know, choke points play important roles, outsized roles for the um, the amount of territory they may occupy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the correction. It's Oman that's on yeah. the Persian Gulf 
on the east, Yemen on the west, and but but even more important for its current location because it means that there's a second choke point that Iranian allied, you know, that an Iranian allied government currently currently occupies and can you know can use at its peril, of course. Um, but you know, if it if it feels motivated enough to block it off it has that power and so i guess the persian the persian gulf and the gulf of aden are the two examples that we can think of that would be like the bering strait where you have some antagonistic nations straddling this area um that sometimes compete over whether it stays open or whether it gets blocked off but it's funny because so far the biggest uh, conflict is not between i mean in the arctic I'm talking about. Uh, it's not between America and Russia. Uh, the biggest conflict is now between Russia and Norway. What's the conflict? So far, Russia, I mean, it's with uh, mainly with the oil. Because, uh, look, uh, back in like 50 years ago, 20 years ago, the Arctic was divided in in quarters, right? In Not in quadrants, quadrants. Uh, so there was one quadrant for Russia, another for America, other for Canada, uh, Denmark because of Greenland. They have also another another uh, quadrant, uh, Norway and and Finland. But with the dissolution, it didn't really work out because uh, there are some points like Svalbard again that are not really clear whether if their resources can be extracted for by any other country or not. And so far, uh, what they are trying to do in a way is say, okay, so the conti- uh, we're going to delimit the territorial waters based on the, continental, on the continental shelf. But it's also complicated to determine what's the continental shelf of, of every country. So... Russia has even sent uh, balls to the depth of the sea with a flag so they can say, this part of the sea is mine. And you can see pictures of Russia sending a marker. So they sent a marker to the depth of the sea with a, with a Russian flag in order to mark their, their territory. And uh, where there is the biggest conflict is with the, with the oil, especially the oil in Svalbard, because... The oil in the Russian coast is okay. It's Russian. It belongs to Russia, and they can exploit it, period. The oil in the USA and in Canada, they can exploit it, but they won't because they have a lot of political pressure by green groups like uh, Greenpeace who are pressing the governments to forbid companies to, to exploit the oil in those areas. But And, of course, in Russia... There, there are even some conspiracy theories. I remember the former NATO secretary, um, Rasmussen, who is Danish, by the way, he, he even pointed out to a conspiracy theory saying that perhaps some of, some of those ecologist uh, groups, they were in a way supported by Putin because he said that it was funny that they were exactly mirroring the official position of Russia and the, the interest of Russia. They probably disguise, uh, disguising them as uh, ecological reasoning, but uh, in a way they were 
all the time Russia was, uh, I mean, they were not after the Russian government because, of course, it's a kind of a dictatorship. So they are a little bit scared of uh, criticizing Russian government for drilling the Arctic coast, but they can do it in Canada and, and USA. But that's another story. The thing is, in Svalbard, there is a lot of oil, a lot of oil. And, but it's not in the mainland, it's on the continental shelf. And as I said at the beginning, Svalbard has a special status, which is regulated by the Svalbard Treaty, which was signed in 1920. And the Svalbard Treaty says that all the natural resources of the island and the archipelago, they can be exploited by anyone. Like the Norwegian government can't stop any country to exploit the natural resources of Svalbard. But they don't say anything about the continental shelf because it was written in 1920, back in the time, no one cared about the continental shelf because there was no technology to drill there. But now there is. And that, that's where all the oil, oil reserves are concentrated. So according to the Russian government, who wants to exploit the oil, in wants to drill in Svalbard, according to them, we should interpret the Svalbard Treaty. Somehow it contemplates also the continental shelf. But the Norwegian government, they said that if it's not written there, they then the continental shelf belongs to Norway and it's regulated by Norwegian law. So therefore, the Norwegian government has the final decision uh, to determine whether they can drill or not. And this is a big political fight between Norway and Russia. Interesting stuff. I was not super familiar with that. No, no, no. It's very, very funny and a little bit hard to, to explain how it works because it's very a detail in a law that was written almost 100 years ago. But uh, it's very interesting. And this is why Russia is sending so many people to, to Barentsburg, because they want to have as much population as possible so they can have a bigger sway on the island. Because maybe one day, so far, uh, there is a local government in Svalbard. So maybe one day they will be able to have a Russian majority Svalbard government and maybe make change the, the status of the island. Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me about from learning about and and you know learning about thinking about and talking about the Arctic, imagining what it might look like when the oil melts, is that you know the the idea that this space is going to change dramatically and that there's going to be investment, build up, economic activity, and political conflict and, you know, potential military stress. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't like fantasy, right? This isn't kind of raw speculation. Um, Russia is building up, is building up a substantial military presence on its Arctic border, along its Arctic coast. Um, there is ongoing, you know, emerging conflict between um, Norway and Russia. And the thing it helps me think about is that you know, I was born in the late 80s. And so there's been this, you know, for people that were born around when I was, the Soviet Union fell and then this sort of new normal set in, right? And this new normal for us in the West has been that the world is relatively peaceful. There is 
fairly minimal, you know, large scale conflict between great nations. Um, it's handled, it ultimately gets handled diplomatically and that things just don't change all that much, right? Borders don't change all that frequently. Um, there aren't, you know, huge invasions that doesn't seem a need to have a huge military because we're not, you know, there aren't like Nazis or Soviets that we have to worry about as much. And the thing all this makes me think about is that climate change is one of the forces um, and there are a number of them, but climate change is a great example of one of the forces that is driving a future that is going to look very different from the present. Uh, and it may not, may not necessarily be worse, right? But I think it's easy for us to, you know, I'm, you know, for those of us who are like between 25 and 35 or 40 years old to think like, ah, yes, like the world is going to be, the world has all of my life been pretty constant and it's going to continue to be constant um, that we've reached this, you know, what, who's the guy that wrote the end of history? Fukuyama. Fukuyama. Thank you. You know, Fukuyama wrote this book, The End of History, that was popular for quite a while, but it's becoming less so um, because we thought like history is ending in the sense that like big changes are ending, big wars are ending. Things are just going to sort of stay the same at some point. And I I think this discussion is a great um, a great example of how that's just not necessarily the case. The future is going to look very different and, and we have to be ready as, you know, as governments, as people for this big change, you know, these big changes to occur. Um, and if we assume that the world's just going to continue in a straight line the way it has, it will be to our detriment. So the world is changing up North in the Arctic and, you know, as the Russians build up their military presence as you start to see new oil exploitation, new shipping emerge, um, new conflict, new opportunities for cooperation. We can't, of course, forget one of the the biggest economic forces uh, for you know one for one month out of every year, Santa, and it does seem a good. Yeah, Svalbard does potentially seem a very good place for Santa to settle back down. You know, these these islands north of Norway and the British Isles um, could be a great place for him. And we talked a little bit about you know Svalbard with its two uh, its two big settlements. Um, you know, but assuming Santa's there, Fonseca, I know you lo- know a little bit more about Svalbard. Uh, you know what's going on there. What's Santa going to run into when he when he starts you know building up his new economic operation, uh, his so, new toy workshop in Svalbard? Santa is going to find one of the most exciting places that you can imagine. I mean, it's surprising, but uh, you know the Seeds Vault. The Seeds Vault is a, a silo where it's paid by Microsoft and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they have samples of all the seeds of the planet. Uh, it's intended to be a kind of a last uh, minute thing in case there is a, an apocalypse and we have to rebuild the mankind from zero. Yeah, it's known as the Doomsday Vault, right? That's, that's it. It's there in Svalbard. And also, uh, he can celebrate not only Christmas, but also the Louis Caton, which is apparently some uh, Thai celebration, because surprisingly, there is a 
significantly big Thai population living in Longyearbyen. Alongside with the Norwegians, they have a lot of Thais. So they can also celebrate some, some Thai thing. And of course, if Santa Claus wants to get some drinks, he can go to the biggest, the world's biggest collection of liquors in the entire planet. It's called Carlsberger Pub, and it's a, it's a bar in, in Svalbard, in Longyearbyen, which is uh, lovely, and you can, I don't know, drink that uh, cognac from 1942, or that uh, old whiskey from the 19th century, things like that. Yeah, Visual Politique did an interview with the owner of that bar, right? We made an interview to the owner of that bar, and he offered us a, a gift that I guess we can we can also we can also apply for the reconsidered media listeners. We said that uh, whoever goes to Svalbard has a drink in the Carlsberger pub, takes a picture of that drink and uploads it to Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, tagging us on the picture, he would have a free drink. We, 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 we pay for that one. So I guess perhaps we can do the same with Reconsider Media. Are you willing, hey, to, cool. pay, uh, are you willing to pay a drink for whoever is on Svalbard listening to Reconsider Media and uploads a picture tagging Reconsider Media? I will personally pay if, if anyone listening goes to Svalbard, takes a picture of themselves in this, in what is it? Carlsberger pub. Yeah. Carlsberger pub. In Carlsberger pub and tags us and says, hi, I will absolutely pay for your drink. We'll split that cost. Yeah. Uh, Well, in case you want to know, it's a nearby Hilmar Rextens street. I just found flights from Boston to Lungyurban and uh, it's only, you know, a thousand to twenty five hundred dollars, depending on how you want to fly it. So if you if you make the trip, I'll cover the beer or the liquor, you know, whatever it is. It's we're we're in. Make it happen, guys. And you know, go scout out a good spot for Santa too. In fact, if you're feeling if you're uh one thing, quick digression is one thing I like talking about with respect to global warming is you know, I'll I'll meet someone, you know, I live in Boston. We're you know, we're right on the water. And someone will be like, yeah, I, I just bought a house on the coast of Boston and it's beautiful and I love it. I just invested my life savings in it. By the way, global warming is going to cause the city to go underwater. And I'm like, why did you make that decision? <laughs> like, that sounds like, that sounds like a bad move. You know, why not invest in, uh, you know, why not invest in territory in like Manitoba or something, somewhere that's going to become nice and warm in 30 years when, when everything starts melting, you go, huh. But, you know, if you're feeling like you want to get into the speculative market, you can start buying territory in Svalbard and uh, you'll suddenly you'll find yourself in a few decades entering into negotiations with Santa over uh, selling or leasing your your territory. So possibly a good economic move. I am not a certified financial advisor, so this is not official economic advice of any sort, but yes. something you can think about. None of this counts as financial advice, even if you're dealing yeah. with Santa. In fact, yeah. one of the one of the uh, investors that is already investing in the Arctic, in the Arctic exploration, he's Spanish, like me. He's called Gerard Lopez. And he's one of the one of those investors who is uh, right there. He's very connected to the Russia's uh, Russia's government. 
he invested on Skype and now he he's on the uh, investing on those alternative trade routes in in the Arctic. There you go. It's the new. It's it's going to be the hot new thing as soon as Bitcoin has uh, figured itself out. People are going to be talking about Arctic land parcels. <laughs> that that's that's the market again to too. Um, <laughs> if you're interested, yeah, you in- missed the Bitcoin thing you know what's next (laughs) we will for folks interested in that interview that visual politique had with the carlsberger bar we're going to put put that link up on the show notes just go to reconsidermedia.com hit the podcast link we'll include that for you and as always remember to check out visual politique um fonseca fonseca has put together a really fantastic enterprise they're 10 to 15 minute long video clips he has a channel both in Spanish and English, so if you're bilingual, you get twice the content. And a lot of these videos touch subjects that you just would not have thought about. And so you get a really great overview, a great briefing on things that just help you understand the world better. So check out Visual Politik. It's on YouTube. And also don't forget to mention that in Visual Politik, you can hear more of Shander and Eric's lovely voice because they have the, the they provide the, the the vocals and the videos, so you can hear more of them in in our visual politic English channel. So Fonseca, then we'll we'll say again, thanks for joining us. These conversations are always a mix of extraordinarily interesting stuff that I hadn't thought about, and dry wit and humor. So thanks thanks for that. <laughs> thanks a lot. I, I really enjoy having a conversation with you guys. So we hope to see you next time as soon as possible. It's always uh, it's always such a good time. Thanks again for joining us. Everyone, thanks for listening. Remember, as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off for this Christmas Day special episode. Happy holidays to everyone. This is Xander signing off. Happy Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. <laughs> Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is Fonseca signing off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.